shall I? We are ready. Okay. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to um, introduce Seth Lloyd to you and to welcome him to, uh, to the Martin School. It's actually very appropriate because I don't know how many of you know, but he's um, our advisor on, on our Martin School cluster um, on, on um, uh, bio-inspired quantum technologies, actually. And, and I think the topic of, of tonight's talk is at least loosely related uh, to this kind of stuff. So I, I didn't Okay. <laughs> Seth, Seth is, um, I'll tell you very briefly about the, the academic side um, because I think it's more appropriate to tell you about his alter ego which kind of kicks in round about this time at night and I think this is a public talk so, th so that's probably the side I want to emphasize a little bit more. So he's a professor at MIT and I think he's been at MIT for 20 years. Um, and he's been at many other world-leading institutions, I think, including both Cambridges, you know, the, the Massachusetts one and the, and the place down the road, uh, past Milton Keynes. Um, um, uh, Seth, very quickly, I think, um, after a few postdocs at Caltech and, and a few other labs, um, got the, the professorship at, uh, at MIT. And then, actually, um, throughout this period, he, he made... Um, uh, a great number of very fundamental contributions to quantum information. So he's one of the pioneers of the field. But he's, he's obviously made contributions to many other, many other directions. So I, I promise to just mention one last thing about the, the alter ego because, because Seth has a very strong media presence. And that's because he's, he's, uh, he's able to convey all of these difficult concepts in a very simple way, which I think will, will be clear from from tonight's presentation. One thing I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to watch is a BBC Horizon program, which is called something like Battle of the, of the Minds or Brains or something like that. And they chose eight, eight, eight or nine uh, people who are basically leaders in their own respective fields. So you have an artist, you have a musician, you have a dramatist, you have a fighter jet pilot, uh, and you have a quantum physicist on that program. Uh, and the program was testing their intelligence in the broadest sense of that word. So they gave the standard IQ, you know, the Isenk-style test. Uh, but they also gave all sorts of other tests which include a, a more generic notion of intelligence. And I don't want to spoil the program for you, it's only one hour long. Uh, but you can already see from, from my introduction who actually came out the absolute winner at the end of the, at the, end of the competition. Um, I would love to be able to interpret that by saying that quantum physicists are the most intelligent people in the world. But unfortunately, I think all this testifies is, is simply to, te uh, to set creativity and originality and playfulness, I think, with which he approaches not just his research in physics, but also in, in, in other directions. So it's great pleasure, Seth. Thank you, Vladko, for a supremely embarrassing introduction. I can't believe you mentioned Battle of the Brains, which was filmed here. But lest you think that it indicates I actually possess any kind of intelligence, I will tell you how I won this battle. So there was one of the intelligence tests was they gave you a pad of paper and a pencil and on this pad, you were supposed to write down all the uses you could think of for a sock. And so, you know, people would say, well, okay, you could put it on your foot, or you could use it to keep your change in, 
or you could use it to hit the mugger over the head when the mugger comes to get your change. And other people, you know, they were kind of running out of uses of a sock, but this is because they were confining themselves to actual possible uses of a sock. So by the end, I was writing things down like, well, okay, you could unravel the sock and you could eat it and it's a good form of roughage to improve your digestion. Or you could unravel the sock and you could knit it up again with a message for an alien civilization which you send off on a spaceship so that the relationship gets off on the right foot. So anyway, <coughs> and then afterwards, afterwards I asked them, so how do you grade this particular intelligence test? And they said, oh, we just count the number of words you wrote down. So <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so let's, let's not, let's not, as Blatko says, I'm not sure how an actual, much of an actual demonstration of intelligence the BBC was capable of, of carrying out. Um, <coughs> so uh, uh, thank you very much, Blatko. I'd like to, to thank uh, David Girolami for being my personal host here at Oxford. I've been having an amazing time. Uh, I, I think there has not been one 30-second interval of my waking day the last couple of days when I've not been hearing all kinds of fantastic and wonderful ideas from the people here. It's an amazing uh, uh, physics department and also computer science department and material science department. It's a remarkable place. Um, uh, uh, so, and I'd like to thank the Martin Foundation, uh, wh where I, I, I now recall vaguely that I have some uh, from official capacity. Uh, <laughs> uh, luckily, they don't demand too much of me because I'm too busy knitting socks. Uh, and um, <clears throat> today I'd like to tell you about work that I've been doing now for um, uh, more than seven years on quantum mechanics and living systems. So the name of this talk, as you can see, is Quantum Life. I normally give talks on the blackboard or the whiteboard, but they insisted on a PowerPoint presentation here. So this is my idea of a PowerPoint presentation, as you can see, my personal PowerPoint. I, pers I actually think that PowerPoint is a tool of Satan. Uh, it's a program. I don't really see why scientists should be using a program that was made for businessmen to convince other businessmen of things that are not true. This seems inappropriate and because life is too short for bullet points in general. So anyway, I made up my own version of PowerPoint for this. So let me, let me explain to you first of how, how I got into this and then what's going on on this slide. Um, so the way that I got into studying quantum mechanics and life was uh, 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 because of an article that appeared in the New York Times about seven and a half years ago. And the article said, that green sulfur-breathing bacteria were performing quantum computations. Uh, now, I'm, I'm a professor of quantum mechanical engineering at MIT, and I spend most of my daily life building, help, building or helping people build quantum computers. And um, at our group meeting that day, we thought this was the most hysterical thing we'd ever heard. But what kind of silly thing is that bacteria performing quantum computations? But um, even though it was silly, they, uh, uh, we felt obliged to go follow up. And in our group meeting, if there's some interesting thing, then somebody gets designated to uh, go and, and see what's going on. So they said, OK, Seth, you're crazy. You go do look at this, right? So I, I went and looked at it. And um, working together with Alan Osper-Guzik, who was then an assistant professor and now associate professor at Harvard, we looked at this paper. And we looked at their claim. We figured out that their claim was wrong. Uh, this didn't take very long. But what was clear from the paper was that 
green sulfur-breathing bacteria were indeed processing energy and information in a way which did indeed involve quantum coherence, the wave-like nature of particles, in just the way that uh, uh, quantum computers are doing this. And in fact, you could even, you could interpret, they, they, in this paper, they made a specific claim for what kind of quantum computation was going on. They said, when the light comes in from the sun, it creates an exciton, a particle of energy. The exciton has to move through this complicated and large photocomplex made of many chromophores like chlorophyll till it gets to the point where it can, to a so-called reaction center where it can be turned into useful chemical energy. And they were claiming that this exciton, when moving through this photosynthetic uh, uh, complex, was performing an algorithm called quantum search to find the reaction center. And this was easy to show that it was wrong, but in fact, you could show that this exciton was doing another kind of quantum computation, which we call a quantum walk. And the way a quantum walk works is that the exciton, instead of taking one specific classical random-looking path through the photocomplex to get to the reaction center, was in fact taking all paths simultaneously. And that one could actually explain the very high efficiency of energy transport in photosynthesis by, uh, by looking at the coherence, the quantum coherence of the wave-like nature of this particle as it made its way through this photocomplex. And that's what I'm going to spend most of my time explaining you about today. I'm going to explain to you the theory that Alain and I constructed in order to explain this very high efficiency of energy transport in photosynthesis. And because this is a popular lecture, actually even if it were not a popular lecture, I'd do this. I'm going to explain this via an interpretive modern dance. An interpretive modern dance that I title, titled The Interplay Between Anderson Localization and Decoherence in Exotonic Transport and Photosynthesis. <laughs> so yes, it's a catchy title, I know. Maybe, maybe I need work on this, right? <laughs> but I, I give you my personal guarantee that after you have seen the dance, you will understand the theory. Um, so, uh, and afterwards, if I'm wrong and you don't understand it, then you can come up and, and, and uh, slap me up a little bit. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, anyway, the, the first part of this, let's see, is this where, yes, okay. This, so this is, this of course is the part of this diagram that represents the sun shining light on a tree to give you photosynthesis. I want to mention in passing that there are several other places in living systems, several other mechanisms where people have postulated a quantum mechanical explanation where the strange, weird natures of quantum mechanics, wave, particle, duality, and things like that play a role. One is in avian navigation. Uh, it seems that the European robin uh, uses a mechanism that's based on funky quantum effects such as entanglement to uh, tell the direction of north from south so it knows where to migrate in the wintertime. And another one is in the sense of smell, fruit flies, are able to smell the difference between an organic compound and the same organic compound where one carbon-12 has been replaced by carbon-13. And since the, there's no chemical difference between these compounds, and the only difference is the vibrational frequency with which the carbon-13 and its neighboring hydrogen atom vibrate back and forth, then um, uh, it's an amazing feature that it seems that the fruit flies are able to sense this vibrational frequency. That is, the nose is a spectrometer. Um, 
And the only mechanism, again, that people have been able to postulate for this that seems to work is quantum mechanical. So that's what these guys are doing here. And now you may wonder who this golden-haired young maiden with her three funny-looking friends are. So this is a, uh, this is a reference to um, uh, a well-known um, uh, children's story called Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Who here has read Goldilocks and the Three Bears? Yes, you know, I thought it was a European story, but I think it was actually first, I, when I researched it, I found it was first written down, at any rate, by the poet, British poet Robert Southey or in the 1840s. So it's much better known in England and the United States than it is on the continent. So well, you know the story. So Goldilocks is a little girl who's lost in the wood. She finds a house and the doors open. And inside the house, there are three of everything. So there are three chairs by a table. One is too big, one is too small, the other is just right. So she sits down in the one that's just right. And on the table are three bowls of porridge. One is too hot, one is too cold, and the third is just right. So she eats the one that's just the right temperature. And now she feels sleepy and she goes to the bedroom and there are three beds and one is too soft and one is too hard. The other is just right. So she lies down on the bed that's just right. She falls asleep. And at this point, the three bears, the three bears who, these. I know it was hard to recognize them as bears, I know, you have to be told. The three bears who uh, own the house come home, and uh, at this point there are several endings of the story, some happier and some less happy, uh, <laughs> depending on how you like your stories. They all end happily for the bears, let's put it that way. Um, <coughs> So this Goldie, there in, in engineering, and I am really am a professor of, of mechanical engineering, though I have no background in mechanical engineering, formal background aside from teaching it for 20 years. In engineering, there's a principle called the Goldilocks principle. And it says that you should engineer things to exactly the right degree of accuracy. For instance, if you have a screw and it's supposed to hold something together, if it's under-engineered so that the precision is too small, it won't work, it'll just get stuck. On the other hand, if you've engineered the screw to the precision of an angstrom, then that's a waste of time and money because you don't have to do that. So there's a just right level for, the, for engineering and, um, uh, or for precision manufacturing, for instance. Now, what I'm going to propose today is a quantum Goldilocks principle, which says that in systems that have uh, a combination of static disorder, the kind of molecular disorder which is always present, inside photocomplexes and organic systems, and you have a system that has dynamic disorder, the jiggling up and down that comes from temperature, that there is a just right interplay between these two kinds of disorder. And when, when you combine it with the wave and particle-like nature of quantum mechanics, you get something I call the quantum Goldilocks effect, which says that there is a sweet spot, a just right regime, where you can get essentially 100% energy of, uh, efficiency in energy transport. Okay, so that's what this is about. And th this, this theory, as you'll see, is a very, that I'm going to tell you, this quantum Goldilocks theory is a very generic theory. It applies to any kind of quantum or wave-like transport um, in a medium that has both static and dynamic disorder. So it could, for instance, apply to electrons moving through carbon nanotubes. It can apply to waves of light that are moving through a disordered medium, um, as well as to excitonic transport in photosynthesis. And to give some examples of this, okay, so that's the end of this, the introduction. Are there, are there any questions at this point? 
I know that in Great Britain it's not, or in England at any rate, it's customary not to ask questions. However, I am a professor of engineering, and if I don't get feedback, then I can be like an out-of-control robot that like, wanders around, damaging things. So. Oh, so when you reach the Goldie, the question is, when you find the right bed, do you stop looking for the, go for the other beds? Yeah, I don't know. It depends if you're a sleepwalker or not. <laughs> okay. So for an example of the kind of system that I'm thinking about is, here is a, a, a rendition of a sheet of graphene. Graphene is, uh, you know, a single layer of graphite. It's like an unrolled carbon nanotube. It's a famously regular uh, system. You can see it's all hexagonal all the way down. But even a sheet of graphene will have waves and bubbles into it because it has a finite stiffness. And if I were to take an electron that's propagating through the sheet of graphene, what you'd find is that eventually, because of this static irregularity in the graphene, it would get stuck. It would become what's called localized. And what I'll tell you is how that electron can get unstuck. Uh, here is another system. This is a much more disordered system. This is actually a micrograph of um, an array of quantum dots. Um, quantum dots are actually, they're similar. You can think of them from the quantum standpoint. They're very similar to the chromophores or chlorophyll molecules that the exciton hops between. So you have an exciton that hops between these quantum dots. In this case, compared with the graphene, you see that they're much, they possess a, a considerable degree of order, but they're also much more disordered than the graphene. So here, you would expect an exciton that starts here. It might get a little way if it were just undergoing wave-like transport, but then it would get completely stuck. This is a nice picture. This is a set of rolled up carbon nanotubes, which you can see are sheets of graphene that have been rolled into tube-like structures. Um, again, you can imagine excitons or electrons propagating along these carbon nanotubes, and the theory would apply to them as well. This is a very fun system. I've been doing a number of, since working out this theory, we've been, and applying it to naturally occurring photosynthetic systems, we've been making man-made systems, or in this case, women-made systems. In fact, all of our systems are women-made systems. Some of them are actually also virus-made systems, as we'll see, um, uh, uh, to try to uh, make artificial systems that give the same very, very high efficiencies for energy transport that the natural systems do. This is a pretty cool one. It's what's called a double-walled J aggregate. You can see on large scales it's very regular. It has two walls, and it's made up of chromophores, molecules that can carry, well, chromophore literally means in Greek carrying color. And chromophores are, are molecules where these excitons, these particles of excitation, can move back and forth. Because of its very regular structure here, this uh, J aggregate exhibits highly quantum mechanical effects, and the waves corresponding to these excitons can, I haven't started the dance yet, it's, I'm, I'm just getting warmed up here. These waves corresponding to the excitons can propagate for a long way before getting uh, localized and stuck. Um, this is, a, this is a, a, another woman-made system. It's looking down the tail end of a bacterial virus, uh, these are, are used by my colleague Angela Belcher to great effect. What she does is she genetically engineers the virus to attach different kinds of binding sites on the outside of the virus. In this case, each of these little yellow things represents a site where you can attach an organic dye, which is a chromophore as well. It can carry light and color and excitons. And then the idea is that the excitons hop back and forth 
uh, on this. And this, you could use this as a collector for uh, energy for solar cells. And since actually I noticed the, the Martin School is we're supposed to be tackling the challenges of the 21st century, whatever that means, uh, <laughs> I, I think for most MIT students, the primary challenge is getting a date on Saturday night. But I don't, somehow I don't think that science and technology is going to help them in this. Um, uh, 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 one of the primary challenges in making alternative forms of energy harvesting is to create systems that can match this very long energy collection path length that occurs in natural systems. Uh, uh, in existing systems, we tend to be off by a factor of 10 from the natural systems. So here we're taking a semi-natural system and arranging it so that it can actually harvest this light. This is the tail end of this, um, this virus. So when I first started talking with Angie about this, she said, oh, we have these systems and we can collect the, the light and the, the excitons hop around, but what we need is an acceptor to accept the excitons. So if we had a mission from that, then we could actually measure how far the excitons are moving along this virus. And I said, well, why don't you just um, maybe, I mean, this is probably impossible, but, but maybe you could take a quantum dot and attach it to the hind end of this virus. And then when the exciton gets to the end of the virus, it falls into the quantum dot, and then it will emit light. And um, this, of course, means that, that you could, uh, you, uh, the good reason for this is that you would have a virus that can shoot light out of its behind. Uh, this is one of the primary reasons for doing this. Uh, oh, sorry, the Martin School probably. This is a family. I shouldn't talk like this. This is a family-oriented family, family -oriented talk. Uh, so I said, but I'm, you probably can't do this. She said, oh, no, no, no. Wait for a couple of weeks. We'll have a virus with a quantum dot attached to its behind. Um, I should say that I actually mentioned this to, okay, you can, here's a picture of this. Here is the uh, virus. This is actually an electron micrograph of the virus. And here is the quantum dot here attached to the bottom of the virus. When I described this to a producer at the BBC, she said, oh, Seth, you're describing it in such a coarse way. You should really think of it as a magic wand. And the, the light is shooting out of the top of the magic wand. But I suppose we could do this by turning this picture over. The light is absorbed, so there, there are 3,600 sites for the uh, chromophores, for the dyes along this. So there are about 3,600 of uh, organic dyes along here, and the quantum dot sits at the end. So the light is absorbed uniformly over the whole length of this. The exciton is created, and then it jiggles around, takes a little random walk here. And if you're lucky, it ends up down there. And when it gets there, it falls into the quantum dot. That's the idea. OK. So. Oh, and this is now, we t we, these are naturally occurring photosynthetic systems. This is um, uh, the photosynthetic apparatus of uh, purple bacteria. You can see because it's purple, right? So <laughs> purple bacteria, this is a, an example of, these are called LH1, LH2. LH stands for light harvesting. RC stands for the reaction center. So this gives you a nice picture of the kinds of systems that show up in actual naturally occurring photosynthesis. What happens here is light comes in, it gets absorbed in one of these um, LH2 arrays. It rapidly falls down to this inner ring of chromophores there. Actually, in this case, it behaves in a very quantum mechanical or wave-like fashion. The wave kind of propagates around in this ring. And then uh, every now and then it will hop from one ring to another and then propagate in another ring and then hop to another ring. And eventually it will get to the reaction center. And when it gets to the reaction center, it can fall in there, and, and now it's available, its energy is available to be turned into chemically usable energy. I put this in because it's so 
it's, you know, these are amazing things that have evolved in these naturally occurring systems. This is a picture of, of the, this famous green sulfur bacteria. Um, these are uh, uh, the chlorosomes of the green sulfur bacteria consist of 400,000 chromophores rolled up in a jelly-like roll, kind of like that long tubes that we've been looking at before. Uh, again, the, the exciton, the light comes in, it gets turned into a, uh, uh, an exciton. The exciton, in a very wave-like fa fashion, rattles around, uh, waves around in these rings until it gets down here, propagates through this base plate here, and gets down here to the reaction center. And the first system in which this quantum coherence, this wave-like nature of excitonic transport was demonstrated in this little thing down here, which is called uh, FMO, Fenham-Matthews-Olsen complex. So you can see these systems are tremendously complicated. And if you want more just to try to, to model them in an ab initio fashion, then it would be very difficult. The models themselves would have to be very complicated. And I don't do that. I, like, I, I want to make a very simple model of what happens. And so I'm going to now make a very simple model of what happens for you. Um, any, are there any questions before we go into the, oh, sorry. And this, this is actually a picture of this FMO complex. There are three, three uh, groups of 14 chromophores making, making um, 42 altogether, as it, of course, it must, since 42 is the answer. Um, uh, <coughs> all right, good. So are there questions about this, this part? The, this is now the end of the extended introduction, just to put things into context before. It's, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm getting itchy feet here. I feel, feel the need to start performing this interpretive modern dance. But are there, are there questions about this or comments that people would like to make? You mean that my slides? That's very kind of you for saying that, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's very ordered. I mean, these, these, these um, biological systems are a rather beautiful, uh, beautiful combination of order, randomness, disorder, complicated stuff. It's awesome. I mean, I've never actually, I'm of the generation that never had to study biology formally, so I've only come at it to it rather late in life. And so I find it tremendously exciting as opposed to excruciatingly boring as I probably would have when I was seven. So, <coughs> yeah. On the slide before. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, one more Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your background is in physics, right? Is your background in physics? Yeah. Yeah, so, so since you ask, I will tell you. So, uh, yes, yeah, so, so if you look at the uh, kind of tight binding model for an exciton hopping around here, then uh, you can solve this Hamiltonian exactly, and you get these wave-like solutions that will propagate in either direction around this ring. However, the ground state of these solutions, because it's a small, in a smaller ring, has a slightly higher energy than the ground state of the larger ring. The zero-point energy is lower for, these, for the larger ring. And so, in fact, in this, um, though there's no energy bias for exciton here, it will just rattle around at random here. It can just as easily go backwards as well as forwards. Once it's reached this LH1 ring, then if it falls in there, it's unlikely to go back, which is why the LH1 ring surrounds the reaction center. So excitons will rattle around out here um, uh, with slightly higher energy than the ones when the, they get here. However, in, in these photosynthetic uh, cent reactions, in these centers, these antennae, all of the antennae, the larger part of them by far, has no energy bias to going 
towards the reaction center, which is really quite remarkable. Because you think it would make more sense just to go downhill, to give them a hint where to go. However, the problem with that is that to make them go downhill, they have to lose energy. And apparently, it's more important to save that energy than it is to uh, actually get to this reaction center faster. It's, uh, these, some of these, these green sulfur bacteria, they, um, they, many of them live in play very low light environments, such as, for instance, some of them live at thermal vents kilometers below the surface of the ocean. And they're still photosynthesizing. And you could say, well, where do they get the photons? There's no light from the sun coming two kilometers below the surface of the ocean. And the answer is that they're, they're harvesting the visible photons in the black body radiation coming out of the thermal vents, which if you're from a physics background, you say, wow, that's pretty amazing because there's not many photons there. And indeed, this is why it shows you why there's tremendous evolutionary pressure to get very high uh, uh, energy efficiency, transport efficiency. So you'd, here's this poor purple green bacteria. It's like, oh, I got a photon. Oh, thank God, finally the children will eat. Oh, shoot, I lost the exciton. Oh, you fool, you dropped the exciton. The children will starve. So, so, I mean, you see just for marital relations between bacteria, it's an extremely important thing. <laughs> so, yeah, ba bacteria not having brains or have less, you know, plausible stories. Well, I lost the exciton because, right, you know. Anyway, let's not get into that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, now let me tell you about, about this sorry, question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know, yeah. I mean, you, the thing about, about these, um, what I've learned about these biological systems, you never know why, just why they got this structure, but what you do know in all these systems is that they're tremendously efficient. It's kind of the opposite of my alternative life and the life of people here where you're trying to design structures that have great amount of quantum coherence and it always fails and it's never what you wanted to. Here it's like, I wonder why it looks like that. Uh, and you don't know. But you do know that whatever it's doing, it's doing it right. Billions of year, years of evolution make for very happy spousal relations between bacteria. Um, actually, these little things on the side, if you look like them, they look like little tiny nuclear power plant cooling towers about seven nanometers in diameter. That's what they actually look like. Okay, so let's get to, I, I'm getting itchy feet. Let's get to this quantum Goldilocks effect. Goldilocks, for some reason, she's looking a little, a little mean right there, or like, looking forward to something in a kind of unpleasant way. And the bears are, who knows what the bears are thinking. <laughs> okay, so now let me explain. I'll, this, I'll, I'll show you what's going on by um, uh, making a simple hand waving, and in this case, arm waving and, and uh, leg shaking kind of theory, what goes on with this. So um, let's consider for simplicity, rather than looking at these very complicated systems, let's look at the simple problem of transport of a particle, such as an exciton, a bound electron-hole pair, a particle of energy, along a line. I do this because it's easier to draw, but the same argument would hold on two- and three-dimensional structures as well. They would actually hold in four-dimensional structures. Um, <clears throat> so the idea here is that we have this exciton that's moving back and forth. There is a coupling between this, which is the strength of the interaction between these local chromophores. And it really represents, you can think of it as the intrinsic velocity of this particle as it moves along this line. Uh, this has been cut off right here in my PowerPoint slide. I have to talk to Microsoft about this. 
this is supposed to be delta omega, this shows you that the energy levels are slightly disordered. They don't exactly have the same energy on each of these points. <coughs> so, <coughs> now, let me, let me tell you what happens in this kind of, of transport here. I think I'd, in the interest of my own health, I'd better do this on the floor, but I think people can see me, okay. So, if, uh, now, in, in quantum mechanics, there's this famous uh, phenomenon called wave particle duality. And it means that a particle, like this particle of energy, this exciton, has a wave that's associated with it. And if this were completely regular, if delta omega were zero, so that there was no difference in energy, so it were a regular lattice, if you like, then this wave corresponding to this particle would, just par would propagate ballistically forever in either direction along this line, right? Which would be great. Now, if everything were completely regular, we wouldn't have to do anything, then the, you know, the exciton would show up and it would just you know, propagate. I just I feel I have to do this again. Propagate, <laughs> propagate in a wave-like fashion to the reaction center and you'd be done. However, because of this existence of this uh, disorder, this static disorder in this system, what happens is that the wave exhibits destructive interference as it moves around, and, and the plus parts and the minus parts of the wave cancel each other out, and instead you get extremely stuck. So you're just stuck. This is what's called technically Anderson localization. Um, and you don't go anywhere. And that is very bad very bad for uh, uh, energy transport. However, there's something that comes along to save you, and the point is that actually things are kind of jiggling up and down. So these energy levels are actually jiggling up and down, and the jiggling up and down does what's called decoherence, and by jiggling up and down, it frees the way, ah, I can propagate again at last. Oh, shit, I'm stuck. Oh, now I can propagate again. Ah. I should mention that the wave Actually, when it gets unstuck, it propagates in both directions, but I was unable to figure out <laughs> proper way to include that in the dance. <laughs> so, so you have this wave. Let's now mathematize this theory. So you have this wave. Over short time, you have this wave-like propagation up to this localization length. I'll call it L, why not? And then you get stuck for a time, which I'll call tau sub d, the decoherence time. It's the amount of time it takes the, the uh, wiggling to unstick the wave and let it propagate again. And then you repeat. And each time you repeat, you can think of it as moving in a random direction. It chooses one direction at random. <coughs> so, over the long time, what does this mean? This means you're actually taking what's called a random walk, the kind of thing that I almost was doing when I came out of the king's arms last night. But luckily, I didn't have that extra pint that Vladka was pressing on me. <laughs> Where you wander random back and forth, and you have a step size. The step size is equal to this localization length, L. And the time it takes to take and make a step is just this decoherence time, T sub D. Now, <coughs> Um, what happens in a random walk, if I just take this kind of like, you know, like ordinary random walk, you see I don't actually have a net velocity in any direction, but my position gradually diffuses or spreads out, and what happens is that the, the, the 
the expected value of how far I spread out, which in this case is this thing over here, it's the square root of the expectation, the standard deviation of how far I've spread out, it grows as the square root of time. And so in a random walk with step size L and step time, T sub D, what happens is the spread of the position of this exciton goes as L times the square root of T divided by T sub D. Okay? I, people are nodding at me, and that's what I like, positive feedback. Uh, <coughs> I like to think it was my grace in, the, in my dance. But do you have a, do you have a question? Yeah, it gets out very washed out extremely rapidly. So wherever the, the exciton is created that will do a random walk, it can propagate in a wave-like fashion. For instance, around these rings, can propagate around about a third of the ring in a wave-like fashion. But then it will start doing a random walk. And from that point, it will be a diffusive motion. And the diffusion coefficient is just L squared over T sub D. So it goes up linearly in terms of this decoherence time. So you have an interesting feature, which is that in these systems, quantum coherence, because of this disorder, quantum coherence is bad. You get stuck. And adding decoherence, which is bad for quantum computers, actually unsticks you. And it increases the rate at which you can move through this, uh, uh, through this photocomplex, or this carbon nanotube, or whatever it is, or this virus, or whatever it is that you're moving through. Um, <clears throat> OK. So that's in the case where we're, uh, it, it's this decoherence time is longer than the localization time. Here I propagate for this localization length, and then I get decohered. But meanwhile, while I'm sitting there, it's like, oh, man, I'm stuck and localized. You know, wouldn't somebody come along and decohere me, right? <coughs> so um, <coughs> uh, now let's what happens if we increase this, this decoherence rate. So let me do this again down here. I think this is safer. I noticed that there are several steps over there. They, I was giving a version of this talk at a Kavli lecture in Delft, and I ran at great velocity into a desk, uh, which uh, caused great hilarity to the audience, and also showed like kind of the problem of static disorder as well, but it was quite painful for me. <laughs> so now suppose that the decoherence rate or the decoherence time is shorter than the time it takes to get localized. Now what happens then is you're propagating as a wave, but you're jiggling up and down. And before you get localized, you get decohered and you can reverse or go one direction or another. So now, now you're like, you never get stuck. The, the static disorder doesn't hurt you any longer. But now what's happening is <coughs> the decoherence time, you're getting decohered before you get that, that particular distance, right? It's like kind of a, a jitterbug-like feeling right here, right? Okay. So let's mathematize that part of this uh, interpretive modern dance. All right, so if the decoherence time is shorter than this localization time, and the lo localization time is the localization length divided by this coherent propagating velocity, then now you're taking a random walk and what's happened is your step size is now shorter. It's this velocity times the decoherence time, which is shorter than the, uh, shorter than the localization length. OK? You can only propagate in a wave-like fashion until you get decohered. 
you're getting decohered before the localization length because the decoherence time is less than the localization time. So the step size is whatever distance you can propagate in the step time, which is, again, just the decoherence time. Okay? And so now when we actually look at the rate at which we're spreading, again, we're taking a random walk, but now our step size is this V T sub D, the decoherence time. The step time is a decoherence time. So this is the step size, step time. I have the formula for how I go, but you see now I've got this extra decoherence time up here, and now my formula goes as the velocity times the square root of the decoherence time times the uh, actual time. And what's happened, if you compare it over here, is that this, this uh, decoherence time went from going downstairs, which means that as you increase the decoherence rate, you, you get better diffusion, and it's gone to upstairs. So now as you increase the decoherence rate, you decrease the rate of diffusion. And if my PowerPoint skills are good, then I will have a picture of this here. Aha! I'm, I'm, very, I'm really bad at giving PowerPoint presentations because I, I normally just write them up so I know what I'm going to say, whereas here as I never really know what's going to happen next. So, <coughs> uh, this is, I can't, don't know if you can read that there, it maybe didn't come through. This is the quantum Goldilocks effect. It's so gold, she's so light-haired that you can't read the Goldilocks there. Um, but the quantum Goldilocks uh, effect says, as I increase the decoherence rate, the rate of interaction with the environment, the rate at which thermal excitations go and whack me around, if I start at very low level, what happens is initially, as I, for instance, increase the temperature, then I will, the diffusion rate will go up. But if I go beyond the point where I get to this localization rate, then, or the one over the localization time, then beyond that, the decoherence rate will go down, and these curves will have this particular characteristic shape. And in the middle, there's something else that happens, which means it goes from one to the other, and you need to do a little more calculation. Now, the interesting thing about this is this, this particular curve, which um, Alan Asper-Guzik and our collaborators and I demonstrated in our first paper in 2008, or two, in two th papers in 2008, 2009, on this effect. Um, <coughs> we actually calculated it just by simulating the motion of an exciton through this FMO complex. And then subsequently, I came up with this, this uh, interpretive modern dance interpretation of it. So <coughs> um, this whole curve had never really been mapped out before. This part of the curve had been mapped out. And in very detailed simulations and, and in experiment, it shows that it obeys this very nice form, just this form that comes from the interpretive modern dance. This part had been mapped out. Um, and it also obeys this neat interpretive modern dance form. And when you put the whole thing together, you find that in all the places where people have actually done experiment and actually done detailed simulations, then this curve works really well, despite the admittedly very hand-waving nature of the argument that I gave for you. Okay? So, um, <coughs> uh, are we doing so okay so far? Does the mathematization of the interpretive modern dance make sense? <coughs> Good. All right. So, now let's go to the more fun stuff. <coughs> oh, yes. Now, this actually, this is very important. I should, <coughs> I'm sorry, I forgot about this. Now, I claim <coughs> that this, um, this model, <coughs> which hand-waving though it is, is a quantitative model. It gives a, a very precise form for how things scale as a function of 
time, temperature, etc. This actually <coughs> um, is extremely useful for understanding how naturally occurring photosynthetic systems achieve virtually 100% efficiency in energy transport. Why is that? It's because if you look at this decoherence rate, <coughs> then in general it has the following functional form. It goes up as a function of temperature. As you raise the temperature, things get whacked around more. This lambda, oops, sorry. This lambda, this is the, what's called the, this is the interaction strength with the environment. So the more strongly you interact with your environment, the higher this rate of decoherence. That also makes sense. Slightly less obvious is that if in the, in the denominator, in the basement down here, is the decay rate of environmental correlations. So actually how, what the environment is doing is very important for this rate. And what this means is if the environment is pushing you in a particular direction for a longer time, then it's more effective at, uh, at decohering you. Whereas if it's only pushing for a short time here, a short time there, then it will be less effective at decohering you. Now the important thing about this particular quantity right here is that this is evolvable. So, you know, if you're at, I guess if you're at a particular temperature, there's not much you can do except move to southern climes. Uh, it was, I, though I have to say, people are telling me that it's been quite cold here. On the other hand, it was 10, minus 10 degrees in Boston when I left and minus 20 last week, so it seems quite warm to me. Um, but, whoops, sorry, things like this interaction strength with the environment in these photosynthetic systems, this comes from how tightly these chromophores like chlorophyll are bound to the proteins that hold them. That's something that can easily be evolved by changing the form of the binding and changing the structure of the skeleton. And similarly, the uh, decay rate of environmental correlation, you can actually, by making your system stiffer, you can make this shorter. By making it more flexible, you can make it longer. And making things, structures stiffer or more flexible is something that is easily controllable by uh, natural selection. So when you go to this curve right here um, and you ask in this purple bacteria, you go, you find, you ask where this optimal operating point is, you look at all these, these uh, you measure these lambda and this gamma and you ask, oh you also measure the localization length in the system and then you ask at what temperature at what temperature do you get the maximum efficiency? Well, somebody give me a guess. What do you think that temperature is? 20 yeah, it's 290 Kelvin, right? So, coincidence? I think not. Uh, so, you know, this means basically there, there are several interpretations of, of, of this uh, according to your religious persuasion. You know, one is, Latvia doesn't like me talking about religion, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, one is that God she is one great quantum mechanical engineer. She really knows what she's doing. And the other interpretation is gajillions of bacteria did not die in vain. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting in all the systems that we've looked at, you, you can find that these parameters like lambda and gamma and the other parameter that goes into this, which is the localization time, they can vary by orders of magnitude, an order of magnitude in either direction, but this ratio, always ends up giving you the point where this decoherence rate matches the localization rate. So that this, you know, this, our magic Goldilocks parameter is basically one.
which is strongly suggestive. Okay, so let me talk about some of the stuff that we've been doing more recently. Um, we've been, uh, this is, includes Alan Adams, who is actually a string theorist, if you can imagine that. A string theorist doing something practical. What, what is he thinking? Um, sorry. <laughs> if there are any string theorists in the audience, I apologize. You know what I mean if you're a string theorist, right? So <coughs> now let's look at driven systems. So for instance, if I take a carbon nanotube, a conducting carbon nanotube, I have an electron that goes in one end and it falls down the quantum nanotube, so it's a wire, basically. Let's apply the same analysis to these driven systems. Now what happens in a driven system is instead of taking a completely random walk, you take a biased walk because you're slightly more likely to go downhill than you are to go uphill. And as a result, uh, instead of just diffusing outward, you do diffuse outward, but in, you, in addition, you move purposefully ah, downhill. Right? <laughs> I found the reaction center, right? Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I claim that exactly the same analysis suitably reinterpreted applies here. So now, now this is, I had to stop for a bit to get me my, uh, get my breath for the next part of this. All right, so what happens in this system? So here, once again, we have uh, an energetic disorder. It's not, we have an energy change, but it's not an energetic disorder. And now by conservation of energy, what's going to happen is the following. So <coughs> here I am, I'm this particle. I want to go downhill in that direction. But the problem is, unless I have a way of giving up energy to my environment, I can't do it. And instead, what happens is I undergo what are called block oscillations. I just go back and forth, but then finally, I don't have enough, I can't give up my energy, so I'm just kind of stuck. I'm just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, oscillating, oscillating is incredibly dull. <laughs> All right? <clears throat> so, it's also super bad for transport. Now, this is a very well-known phenomenon. It was pointed out by Bloch more than half a century ago. And uh, it means that it basically, if you're a closed system or at zero temperature with no interaction with your environment, then you have zero conductance. So <coughs> what do we want to do? Oh, uh, I guess this is just the same picture. So let me actually just talk it through. So if we add relaxation, however, then we can do better. Because here I am, <coughs> going back and forth, just doing undergoing block oscillations, back and forth, back and forth. But if at some point I can relax and give up energy to my environment, ah, then I can move downhill. And then I just start the same darn block oscillations again, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Ah, and then, well, I better stop right there. This lecture hall's not big enough. Um, <coughs> so what that means is that as you increase the relaxation rate of your system, which you can do by, for instance, increasing the temperature and increasing the rate of exchange of energy with the environment, then you find that the conduct conductivity goes up. Okay? However, if you increase it too far so the relaxation rate becomes too high, two things happen. One is that your, your rate of relaxation becomes slower, faster and faster, but also your rate of excitation becomes faster and faster. So you go here, sometimes instead of going downhill, you go uphill because now you're getting energy from the environment rather than giving it up to the environment. 
So now you're still doing this random walk, but a lot of the time you're actually going uphill instead of downhill. And instead of progressing in this nice kind of smooth way, around and around and around and around, ah, around and around and around and around, ah, part of the time instead of relaxing, you're getting more and more excited, and so you could end up over here. Um, <clears throat> Uh, of course, the optimal thing to do, as before, is you'd like to match your relaxation rate with your block oscillation time. So if I just like halfway through, it's like, ah, again like that, ah. So if, I, if, every, if basically halfway through a block oscillation, I relax, then I will get the maximum conductivity as a function of temperature. So at this point right here, the relaxation rate matches the block oscillation time. You get this nice maximum, and you find that you get these very generic kind of curves as a function of temperature. And you see it's the same kind of quantum Goldilocks curve as before. I should say, for the purposes of advertising, particularly since I see Simon Benjamin there in the back of the room, and we were talking about this yesterday, uh, 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 that, that the shape of this curve is much more complicated, can be much more complicated in this case, because <clears throat> as you um, increase the temperature, you can increase the velocity by which you're moving back and forth. There's a relationship between the size of the steps and how likely you are to go backwards rather than forwards. And it's actually possible, whoops, sorry, possible for, uh, to go up further and further and then change the dependence of this and then eventually go up further, but then in the end, you always go back down. So this curve, we, in, in our paper about this, we, we give a bunch of the different possible shapes for this curve, but they all start out low, they go up high, and for high enough a temperature, you're eventually going to get zero conductivity. Okay, so <clears throat> um, uh, uh, let, me, let me do some conclusions here but while, I, while I cool down after my, my physical exertions. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> what did I show you here? So um, I was talking about the role that quantum mechanics plays in photosynthesis. Um, it's, it's, this is uh, the place in living systems where the role of quantum mechanics, where it's very clear from experimental evidence that quantum coherence and the wave-like nature of quantum mechanics is playing a very important role in making efficient exotonic energy transport. Um, <clears throat> and I've argued to you uh, by mathematizing an interpretive quantum dance, that we can understand how to optimize energy transport in terms of the interplay between the kind of wave-like nature of, uh, of quantum transport, the particles correspond to waves. Then if you have disorder, static disorder, this gives rise to destructive interference, so-called Anderson localization which is bad, um, but decoherence, the jiggling up and down of the uh, molecules and the places where the energy transportation is taking place, then destroys destructive interference, allowing things to propagate again. On the other hand, very generically, if you have too much wiggling up and down, everything becomes completely random, the timescales become completely short, and then you also, you destroy transport again. So the argument is that for all such systems, which include a very wide variety of systems, that you get this quantum Goldilocks effect. 
that there's a just right interplay between uh, wave-like propagation, destructive interference, localization, and decoherence, interaction with the environment. Um, that's why, uh, as I mentioned, the interpretive quantum dance is entitled the interplay between wave-like nature, uh, uh, static disorder, and decoherence in uh, quantum energy transport. And actually, when I said, I said at the beginning just to make it sound as silly as possible, but I'm hoping that now after this that you understand what the dance was about. <clears throat> and essentially all these systems, both in living systems and in woman, man, and virus-made systems, to go perhaps in the right order, unless it's women, virus, and man, depending on your position. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, that, that uh, you can not only understand what's going on in terms of the energy transport in these systems by this kind of simple model, but you can actually engineer uh, an optimal level to get to this ultimate uh, Goldilocks level where you have just the right interplay between the quantum and the classical, and you can get virtually 100% efficiency in energy transport. So, uh, thank you very much. I think we have a little bit of time for questions and answers. May I ask you to just use this mic because we are being recorded and I think it may make sense if you speak into the microphone so we have the, the full record and of course be careful what you say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've given such a good example here, yeah. <laughs> Um, I come from the uh, integrated optics background, and um, in our field, there's a pretty well-known phenomenon we just, uh, of coupling to resonators, yeah. Uh, yeah. where um, uh, you can achieve different regimes of coupling, uh, we call undercoupling, critical coupling, overcoupling, and it, that depends very sensitively on the balance between the, the coupling rate into your system and dissipation inside. Mm -hmm. Can you give some intuition as to the relationship between that kind of physics and what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. So, so indeed, that, that's true. So, so here I was talking about propagating relatively long distances. But if you're trying to get a photon to get you know, in or out of, of a resonator, and you have some coherent effect and maybe some phase mismatch or energy difference, and then actually you can be helped by, by actually the degree of noise in the system. Um, so. Uh, actually, uh, I'm right now I'm doing these experiments with Dirk Englund at MIT, building these very who's building these very large array of integrated optics, Mach Zander interferometers, to use them to demonstrate exactly this effect of uh, of the kind of first localization of photons as they propagate propagate through such array, and then we can simulate the dynamic disorder in the system to show how they can get freed up from this. So yeah, I think this, is, this kind of phenomenon shows up everywhere. There's a classical version of this, okay, which is called stochastic resonance. But the classical version doesn't have this kind of nice quantum wave-like nature, and it doesn't rely on destructive interference. So. Seth, you, you um, sometimes expounded this in terms of photons, sometimes in terms of excitons. Much of it, perhaps possibly all of it, would apply to charge transport. Absolutely, yeah. How do those three relate to each other? Uh, yeah, so, um, uh, well, I guess actually in this last one, this last example, I was thinking primarily of charge transport. That is, that, that this is a... Uh, 
uh, current, well, I, I suppose if this is an electron, then this is a low voltage with a high energy for the electron, and sadly, a high voltage with a low energy for the electron. We only say it's really too bad that people got the wrong charge when they assigned charges <laughs> to positive and negative. Yeah, so, so this certainly applies uh, to such transport. And um, uh, this, whoops, sorry. And so, for instance, if, um, uh, as, since I, I, this is a, since you were telling me last night, Andrew, in your laboratory about molecules that have <laughs> little steps, so this, this is what, you know, supposedly naive question from Oxford Don, you know, ha, <laughs> about molecules where you have a set of steps, sites that electrons can go through as you go down, then, um, then this is exactly the kind of system which one could apply this theory to. Mm -hmm. I should add that um, for, for you, for you uh, <laughs> we've got a special deal for you because in our paper we also look at the effects of, of disorder and Anderson localization in these. So we also look at not only regular ladders of sites but irregular ladders of sites as you move across. So the theory should apply fully in those kinds of systems. And if I'm allowed a second question, you've talked about it all in terms of a single pathway. Have you extended this to the possibility of more than one pathway with interference between them? Yes, absolutely. So, so um, uh, as you know, so um, <coughs> the, uh, this phenomenon of Anderson localization, which arises from destructive interference, is most pronounced in one dimension. In two dimensions, you still get Anderson localization. But effectively, because there are many more paths that you can travel through a, uh, a lattice, for instance, then the localization is smaller. You still get localization in three dimensions, and in four and higher dimensions, then you don't really get it so much. Um, uh, uh, even in such systems, however, there is, a, um, there is a destructive interference time. So what happens is this, the, um, let's, let's go back here. Uh, so, well, this, this, what happens is this, this um, localization length, if you go through the, the greater detail in the theory, the localization length is a function of geometry and of temperature as well. And so when one actually writes out this particular formula right here, this L or localization length will be longer in two-dimensional geometries, uh, even longer in three-dimensional geometries and it will um, be somewhere in between in fractal-like geometries. Um, and also, it will change as a function of temperature because actually if you start at very low temperatures and then heat it up, the particles can actually move faster, so the velocity is higher when the velocity, you may recall, the velocity shows up there. So, yeah, so, so I would say in, in a more detail, if you go into the, the greater details, the way, the place that um, the change in geometry shows up is, it, it will define the localization length for you, which will be larger in higher dimensional geometries. Thanks. I, I think I'm going to allow one last question at most, because I know Seth has uh, another appointment, actually. Um, um, if you had two dances going on at the same time, and say your dance crashed into the other dance, what would happen? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. So the question is, you know, boy, maybe you heard it. So what happens if you have two dancers and you crash into another dance? I like to believe that with my dancing skills, I may not be Fred Astaire, but, but, but uh, I bet that I could probably arrange it so that, that, that nothing bad happened. However, 
in photosynthesis, when two excitons collide, they uh, tend to destroy each other and their energy is deposited into the lattice, frequently breaking uh, the covalent bonds, thereby getting photo damage. And um, photosynthetic organisms go through a great deal of effort to avoid this ha happening. Um, and when the leaves turn a, uh, a lovely color in the fall, I'm afraid to say they occur a more lovely color in the Cambridge overseas than they do in the Oxford here. Um, uh, the reds and golds that you see are keratins, which are kind of chromoform. Uh, they're orange colored, right? Which means that they're actually, uh, the, uh, they're actually uh, absorbing um, excitons and have slightly lower energy than um, than the, uh, uh, than the excitons in, the, um, in ordinary green and chlorophyll. And the, the primary purpose of these keratins, so far as people can tell, is to act as a kind of a sunblock to absorb excitons that are getting stuck to prevent them from annihilating with each other so that you don't get this actual damage. Um, uh, you know, in, in naturally occurring systems, uh, they don't actually, they don't really care about being in very high light conditions. They sometimes try to avoid them. So for instance, there are naturally occurring photosynthetic bacteria that live in places like Yellowstone Park in, in Montana, where they don't start photosynthesizing before four o'clock in the afternoon. Why? Before then, it's just too hot, right? <laughs> So they want to operate in lower light conditions in order to make things better for them. So um, however, in the case of electrons, I think this is a very interesting question. And um, certainly we know of situations, um, uh, very famous situations like superconductivity, where superconductivity can be thought of as a very elegant Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance of electrons and Cooper pairs through the photosynthetic, sorry, through the, the uh, superconducting system. So I think that there's a very rich possible set of phenomena going on that involve uh, T for two rather than just for one. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>